I think I was a bit naive. You know, I have, like most gay people, support trans people, new trans people, defended trans people, thought that they deserved and absolutely required protection from discrimination in every field of activity, essentially. And so we were very excited when the Bostock decision came down in the Trump administration, granting them full civil equality, which to my mind is the end of it. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. Before I introduce this week's guest, Andrew Sullivan, I have a couple of announcements. The first is that we have officially announced the first three Unspeakeasy retreats of 2024. So ladies, are you writing this down? Here we go. March 2nd and 3rd, we will have a weekend retreat in Austin, Texas. April 8th through 11th, we'll have a three-night, four-day retreat in Louisville, Kentucky. And April 20th and 21st, weekend retreat in Los Angeles. Guest speakers in Austin and LA will be announced at some point soon. But our Louisville speakers, I can tell you now, will be Nina Paley and Corinna Cohn from the Heterodorks podcast. They will be joining us for one night. They were guests on this podcast about a year ago. If you are interested in any of these, especially the Louisville retreat, get in touch with us soon by going to theunspeakeasy.com. These retreats have been incredibly successful. They sell out quickly. We had one in Denver back in September, and we recently got back from three nights in the Poconos. They sell out quickly, so get in on it now. We're going to do six retreats next year, but those are the first three that I'm announcing now. Okay. My guest is someone I have wanted to have on the podcast since pretty much the week I started it. Andrew Sullivan is a political commentator, an author, a prolific and longtime blogger. His political blog, The Daily Dish, launched in 2000 and has lived on several platforms, including New York Magazine and now on Substack, where it's The Weekly Dish. Andrew was a prominent figure in the gay civil rights movement, fighting for the legalization of same-sex marriage. He was also an outspoken and many would say controversial figure during the AIDS crisis. He was the editor of the New Republic in the 1990s. He is a practicing Catholic, or at least was the last time I checked. In this conversation, we cover only a fraction of what I would have liked to talk about. But suffice it to say, we discuss his thoughts about the intersection of gay rights and trans rights, the legacy of AIDS and the public health messaging around it. We talk about one of my favorite memoirs, Love Undetectable, that he published back in the 90s, beautiful book. And we talk about his thoughts about a body modification procedure conducted on children, the very, very youngest of children, that is rarely discussed, and that is circumcision. It's a really great conversation. So here it is. Andrew Sullivan, welcome to The Unspeakable. Megan, it's great to be here speaking. There's so much I could talk with you about. You cover so much in your newsletter, The Weekly Dish, as well as on your podcast and elsewhere. But in the interest of efficiency, I thought we would narrow this conversation down into a couple of areas that, that I've written and talked about a lot as well. And the first one is, uh, for lack of a better term, the new gender debate and its relationship to what I'm going to hereby call classic gay civil rights. Mm. Is that okay? 
It's like Coke classic. <laughs> sure, go <laughs> ahead. Okay, I saw you last, the summer of 2022, it, at the Bill Maher taping. You were on with Katie Herzog, and you were talking about um, this new gender movement and, among other things, this kind of conflation of the trans movement with gay civil rights and the potential, I think, inevitable uh, threats to gay people that are going to result from that. So I think that was probably 14 months ago. Yeah. So I guess I want to ask you first, where do you think we are now in this conversation? Has the needle moved at all? I think it may have moved a little, to be honest, in as much as simply the existence of some prominent pushback on childhood transition, which has happened really in Europe and then beginning to seep in over here. And I detect a little more openness to talking about this seriously online that is not completely agitprop. But at the same time, we do have, you know, a, a sort of implacable, it seems, uh, wall of orthodoxy, which is a very brand new orthodoxy, that's still very hard to scale and to break down. And certainly in terms of where gay rights are, whether what was the gay rights movement now is, I don't see any real progress at all. No one has seriously among the, the sort of leadership, so far as that exists, or the donors or anyone publicly has really said this is a huge problem uh, for gay people and that we need to have a discussion about this. Yeah. So my audience is familiar with this subject. I've covered it a lot here, so I don't think I need to give too much context. But I mean, you are somebody who has been talking about gay civil rights for decades now. You were re- you were on the forefront of that movement in the 80s and 90s. You had a lot of skin in the game. You had you faced significant professional consequences or, you know, you took significant risks professionally and otherwise talking about this. What is it like now to see this movement so, I don't want to use the word hijacked, although maybe I just should. It feels hyperbolic. But I mean, what is it like to kind of just sit back and look at what's happened? Well, I think the thing to remember from from my perspective is that what you see now has always been there. This is not a, the, the sort of radical left has always had a very powerful place in the history of gay and lesbian rights. It just is true. And for a very long time, when I say very long time, I mean really since the emergence of the new left and the gay rights movement and Stonewall, et cetera, they were very influential. And even though there were other voices that you can go back all the way back to the beginning of the last century, um, I mean, the early 20th century, you can see there were other voices, well, coherent, moderate, liberal, conservative voices in the gay community that did not adhere to a sort of radical left ideology. They were constantly being drowned out by the rhetoric of the far left. What began to happen in the 80s and 90s was that a bunch of us who were coming of age back then looked at the gay rights movement and what was going on, realized we were in an extreme crisis because we were facing an epidemic of just immense proportions. And we still had no basic civil protections 
certainly almost no real public face that people understood or could acknowledge or understand or interact with. And therefore, a bunch of us decided, well, instead of just sitting around letting this define us, we who this doesn't define are going to actually start coming out, being public, making arguments about how this movement, this left movement, really is not serving the interests of gay men and lesbians. And there is an alternative possibility. And that alternative possibility was the, the pursuit of not assimilation, but integration, uh, equal civil rights in terms of what the government does for people. In other words, granting marriage licenses and allowing people to serve in the military openly. Those are the two key factors and policies which the government itself was in charge of. And insofar as we were citizens, the government was explicitly treating us unequally. And so the argument was, we just demand equality. We're not going to, we're not going to call ourselves queer. We're not going to demand that you decide that your cultural agenda is different. We don't want you to endorse the subversion of all bourgeois society or the queering of every heterosexual norm. We just want simple equality, integration, and the, what we have in common with heterosexuals is much more important in terms of our civil rights than what we don't have in common. And if we can construct an argument like that, a rather mainstream liberal slash conservative argument, the liberal argument was equal rights, the conservative argument was marriage helps responsibility, mutual responsibility and fidelity and all these to the stabilizing aspects of married life could be also help to anchor and stabilize gay culture, which at that point was pretty chaotic. And when we made those arguments, we were ferociously attacked, mainly by gay activists. Yeah, I was going to ask, what was the resistance like within the quote-unquote gay community? Is it like, well, you're trying to heteronormalize us? What were they saying? Well, there was, I mean, one of the weirdnesses is, is that I was a young gay man. I was not, I was an immigrant. And I suddenly was vaulted into this place of prominence by being appointed editor of the New Republic, which at the time was really the agenda-setting magazine for Washington and for politics as a whole, and use that position to make an argument, a conservative argument for marriage rights. This was instantly denounced as a capitulation to patriarchy, heterosexism, and oppression. And we were derided as homocons. That was the... <laughs> Uh, we were mercilessly personally attacked. When I brought out Virtually Normal, I was literally the book, the first book to make an argument for marriage rights. I was picketed by lesbian Avengers at several bookstores. I couldn't get in. And a huge crowd in London, I was denounced by Peter Tatchell, no less, a big gay rights campaigner in front of a crowd of a thousand people. I wasn't even allowed to speak on my own to present my arguments. They had to have a, another person to protect the vulnerable gay crowd from any poisonous, insidious ideas. 
when I tried to raise money to help candidates out there who were, this was the case of Hawaii, where we had our first breakthrough, um, I was told by the human rights campaign that this was a disastrous idea, that marriage was clearly going to blow up in our faces. The Clintons were very hostile and told all the donors not to support marriage rights. When I testified for the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996, that very morning, Clinton came out uh, with no need to do this to say he had no objections to DOMA constitutionally, and he'd be happy to sign it. And we should explain what DOMA is just for our younger DOMA listeners. DOMA is the Defense of Marriage Act, which was rushed into legislation in, in 1996 because there was an unfounded fear that if Hawaii would did succeed in granting marriage rights, then suddenly every other state would have to agree to it and we'd have national marriage rights for gays without it. And this was never going to happen. In fact, the full faith and credit clause did not apply to marriage. But this was very hard to explain to people and there was enough of panic about it that they put up this thing defining marriage federally for the first time as exclusively heterosexual and barring any recognition of other states' marriages. So at the same time, I was, I had glasses thrown at me in bars. I was pushed up against the wall in one and had the word collaborator yelled into my face. But okay, I just want to understand this. So like the the people, the 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 gay people who were mad at you, is it because you were asking for too much and it was strategically like a bad way to go? Or was it that you were just, you were collaborating with the other side? Like what did they want? What would they have wanted? There were two two kind of sides to this. One was the the queer nation kind of uh, street activists who regarded it as capitulation to heterosexuality, essentially, a kind of denial of our very essence of being queer, as they would say, we don't want to place the table, we want to overturn the table. You can go back and you can see these debates on TV at the time. No, we have to abolish marriage altogether. We, that's our job as queers. It is not to, let alone to actually join it. And you, Andrew Sullivan, are a suck up Uncle Tom, and you're a slut anyway. We know because you see, I mean, the stuff that was thrown at me was just unbelievable. So they wanted to get rid of marriage for everybody. I actually didn't realize this. Okay, so this was just, this was burn it all down. Yes, it was always burn it all down because all these structures are oppressive in their worldview. And queers were the vanguard of, of resistance. So for queers, quote-unquote queers, although I did not identify as such, and actually refused to identify as such at all, this was uh, tantamount to uh, treachery. Now, the other wing with the donors and the HRC types, the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, as it then was, or fund, I think it was called, HRCF at that point, they just thought this was, as they said, completely pie in the sky that it was an absurd idea that had no support in the polls, that if we presented it, we would lose, and we should instead uh, continue with this program to advance anti-discrimination laws in employment, a law which they still have not passed on a federal level. And this was back in 1990, 91, 92. So their view was, this is all very well, but it's completely highfalutin, and you're out to lunch, and this is a disaster and we're going to lose 
elections because of it. So shut the fuck up and go home. That was basically the view of HRC. And when I went to donors directly to say, can you help us? I was literally told by a leading money muckety-muck in the gay world, just stop, Andrew. These gays don't want to get married. They just want to get laid. This is a completely quixotic and self-indulgent crusade you're on. Um, just stop. I mean, literally, that was, there was no support anywhere. The only other person that was there doing it was Evan Wolfson, who was rare. And we, as soon as he, I wrote the piece in 89, which was a cover story, which created this sort of national debate about it. And the two of us realized they were the only two that really got it. He was a brilliant legal mind. And he did have contacts with some of the donors. I was just a writer and a polemicist, but I did go basically 89 onwards I had a policy of turning down no one if I was asked to speak about this and then did a speaking tour across the country and then produced Virtually Normal, which was the book that kind of launched it more formally as an argument in 95. So I'll tell you, when I was in London for 95, forgive me if I'm going on, but these are just, it's, it's important for people to remember this. So with a crowd of a thousand, Peter Tatchell stands up and says, I just want you to know that we the queer community in London and Britain, we reject marriage, we reject heterosexism, we reject patriarchy, and you, your position is utterly alien to us. And, and there was this moment, and he got a huge applause in this room. And I just remember, because I came back, I had, and I said to him, look, uh, you don't reject marriage, Peter, because you can't reject marriage, because marriage has never been offered to you. I'm fighting for the right for you to say, I don't want to get married. You to have that choice. I'm not telling you everyone has to. I'm saying this is an opportunity and a right that we deserve. And, the, and that got a sort of mild splattering of applause. And, but the denouement of that story is 25 years later, I'm in London hosting a fundraiser for immigration equality, which was a organization to help gay couples who were of different nationalities who couldn't live together. And he came with his husband. Wow. And he actually came up to me and he said, you know what? I owe you an apology. You were right. Um, and here is my husband. <laughs> what did so you say? Not really. <laughs> so, okay. Let's fast forward to a little bit of where we are now. So in 2018, I mean, I think this is fascinating. So it's five years ago. So in 2018, when you were still writing for New York Magazine, you wrote this, the gay rights movement achieved its biggest gains when we worked against polarization, reached out across the spectrum, emphasized the human rather than the political, and did the key hard educational work in our families, schools, churches, and neighborhoods. So this that's all of what you just described. Now you say... The Trump era is, I fear, not just about this hideous embarrassment of a president. It's also fueled by the reaction of many ordinary people to the excesses of the social justice left on immigration, race, gender, and sexual orientation. If the gay rights movement decides to throw in this, throw in with this new leftism and abandon the moderation and integrationism of the recent past, they risk turning gay equality from being about a win-win process for gays and straights into a war between the LGBT people and the rest. Okay, that's five years ago. I'm trying to 
think how long we've been talking about this gender stuff because first of all, it's so fascinating. People are always like, why do you keep harping on this? It's like, because it is such an incredibly rich and vexing tapestry. When did you start noticing the the trans movement in its current iteration? Well, I think the important, one of the important backgrounds to that is that from the mid-90s to roughly 2015, like a good 20 years, essentially the mainstream gay position held sway briefly. In other words, the, the moderates and liberals and conservatives in the movement, because of the success with marriage, because of the success with the military stuff, yeah. were riding high, really. And I, have a, I remember the day marriage came down, June 15th, maybe June 20th or something, uh, 2015, and there was a spontaneous little march down the center of town in Provincetown. I got up and just walked down the street and cheered. It was beautiful. I went, I saw that and I was kind of overwhelmed with it. Then I went to the gym and I said to the guy behind the counter, who was this young guy, I'm like, wow, can you believe it? We finally got marriage equality. He said, oh, I, I don't think we, I don't care about that. What about the trans people? So it happened to me very quickly that the subject was immediately switched. And to begin with, I think I was a bit naive. You know, I have, like most gay people, support trans people, knew trans people, defended trans people, thought that they deserved and absolutely required protection from discrimination in every field of activity, essentially. And so we were very excited when the Bostock decision came down in the Trump administration, granting them full civil equality, which to my mind is the end of it, uh, because that was something that even gays don't really have at this point. They don't have a formal Supreme Court judgment that prevents discrimination in employment across the country in 50 states. Trans people do. And then I sort of began to realize that I had taken my eye off the ball and the, the moderates have sort of felt like, well, this movement is over. Let's shut it down. Let's move on with our lives. It's an amazing success. And meanwhile, these organizations were, of course, being taken over by much more radical leftists for whom the agenda was shifting very quickly. And the same way that the woke revolution began to happen for 2015, 16 onwards in academia and in journalism, it sort of reached this crisis point. So it took off there. And we suddenly hear the term LGBT. And then we had LGBTQ. And then, of course, we have LGBTQ+. And then we have 2S LGBTQIA+. And you realize that we were headed into this completely crazy zone. And then, of course, you began to realize that the trans argument really is about something much deeper. And totally separate. I would say completely distinct. Yes, it is distinct. There's one way in which we do have something in common. We have a couple of things in common. One was that we were both shat on by authorities for most of our existence until recently. But the second was that we, we were regular humans whose minds and brains were somehow primed to be different than 96, 7% of humanity. And that this was not apparent necessarily from the outside, and it was something you had to explain to people. So that was there. But the idea that gays and trans were always some part of some simple and single community, not true. 
What's fa fascinating about Stonewall is that when you actually read the, the actual history of it, it was kind of transphobic, that it was a lot of gay men who didn't want these cross-dressers in their space, although they tolerated them to some extent. But even then, a very different sense of who they were. Right. Uh, so suddenly then this suddenly comes up and we realize we're not talking about civil rights. We're talking about actually the abolition of biological sex as a key element in organization of our society in favor of a much more nebulous form of gender identity, which itself, of course, then undermines and basically obliterates the very concept of homosexuality. Yeah, exactly. Because I think, again, this is something that people don't understand or they just sort of haven't stopped to think about because, you know, gay is about sexual orientation, right? And, but trans is about identity. Identity is different than orientation. How you identify is different than who you're attracted to. So I'm wondering, like, what kinds of conversations do you have with gay people, either your age or any age, younger, whatever, about how these movements intersect? Because I can tell you that as like, you know, a regular straight liberal who hangs out with, you know, progressive, educated, often elites, they have an awfully hard time understanding the difference between the new trans movement and the gay civil rights movement. They are so haunted by all the mistakes that were made, the real abuses, conversion therapy, all the rest that happened, you know, before the 90s, essentially, in the gay movement, and they are unable to separate the two, and they don't want to have any, they don't want to cr criticize the movement at all because to their ear, it sounds like people in the 60s being bigoted homophobes. Right. Well, <laughs> yes, and that's partly why gay people also don't want to be public because any gay person distancing themselves is then regarded as a transphobe and aiding and abetting the enemy. And the enemy is then described in exactly the same way as it was described 20, 30, 40 years ago. And of course, they've always believed that society is about powerful forces of hatred that are always directed to the oppression of tiny minorities, they, which I don't believe and never did believe. And so this makes sense to them. And one of the ways that they have helped do this is this term, LGBTQ or LGBT, as a simple, as a single adjective, yeah. which immediately conflates the gay and the trans experience in ways that is, so they talk about LGBTQ plus people. They even say an individual is an LGBTQ person. <laughs> that sounds very overwhelming, yeah. Well, it's impossible. <laughs> you can't be a lesbian and a gay man and a trans person. You can't. They're, they're extremely different uh, experiences. But for the, the point of the political strategy to make them all seem the same, so if you're against this, you have to be against gays, was part of it. And also because, of course, they're social justice activists. They are social constructionists. They regard the only thing that really defines us is the nature of oppression. And so they regard the commonality as oppression, and therefore all these groups, and in fact, of course, they don't really stop there. They also have to include race, they have to include gender, they have to include all the other stuff. So it becomes this, and there was always this thing, there was a, I mean, I'm, this goes back 20, 30 years as well, 
there was one element of the movement, the gay rights movement, that wanted to be this intersectional, can't put gay rights separately than other things. We have to always be allied with black, with, with African-American groups, with Latinos, with immigration, with, and especially abor- pro-abortion groups, all of which I, of course, felt was completely unnecessary and said so, uh, which made me quite popular. And so, so you can see the advantages rhetorically, and this is part of the, the strategy of the social justice left, is to redefine language so you can't even say things that are true anymore. So you can't say that someone's a gay person and not a trans person, or that the trans experience is utterly different than the gay experience. To give you one example, one of the most important things for a gay kid is to be affirmed in their sex. And one thing that is said to gay boys, for example, is you're a girl, really. You know, you're just, you're not really a boy because you're behaving differently. You like boys, so you're a girl. And the gay rights movement was about saying, no, we are men. We are males. We are boys. We like other boys. This is our identity. This is who we are. We don't know quite why, but we don't want to give up being men. In fact, the idea that we would be called women is offensive. Now, so as a kid, the most important thing to say is to a child is, you're a boy. It doesn't matter if you're playing with dolls. It doesn't matter if you don't want to play sports. It doesn't matter if you're more interested in books than, than football. Um, it doesn't matter if you, you love opera. It doesn't matter if you're into drama, all these other things that are sort of allegedly gender non-conforming. You're still a boy. Now... Any gay boy that shows behaviors like this is told by people in authority, maybe you're a girl. Yeah. It is deeply, deeply homophobic. Yes. It's, it's a way of attacking the psyches of gay boys, gay children, in order to prime them to believe that there is something wrong with them that can be fixed by becoming the opposite sex. That is what child transition is really about. It is about preventing gay kids from going through the puberty that will resolve whatever issues they have around gender nonconformity so that they can be put on a path forever to the opposite sex, which is pretty close. I mean, it's, it's meant in a benign way, but it's very close to what happens in places like Iran, where young boys and girls who are non-gender conforming are taken away and fixed by having their bodies fixed rather than their minds. I wish there was a, I feel like we need like a pocket guide of all of these concepts so like we can sort of carry around with, with us when we go out to brunch with our nice friends and people just don't really understand these distinctions, especially because, you know, you, you bring up the kids it's crucial to remember that this is a new population. The kids that are now stepping forward and saying they identify as trans, that is an entirely different demographic and you know constellation of personality traits and mental health issues than we had 30 years ago or, or even throughout history. I mean, this is I'm curious how you would answer this because arguably there have always been 
trans, if there have always been trans people, if trans people is a real thing, which I think it is, it would follow that there have always been trans kids. Okay, let me, let's stop right there. Is that, do you agree with that statement? With the statement that there have always been trans children? Yeah, let's start with that. Is that, yeah. Do you, yeah, okay. I do. I mean, I think that there are trans adults who will tell you that, that they knew very, very early on. And it's very, in fact, that's actually the most common feature of a trans person is that they know very early and are absolutely fixed from a very early age that they are somehow not the sex that their bodies reflect. And it's always been a very tiny number of children. Most of them don't articulate it till later. So it's in the past. So it's always been a question of, well, how can you tell that they were trans in some ways? But you can see it equally, you know, just as, and I understand that because I, I know that even though when I was four or five, six or seven or whatever, I didn't know I was gay as such because I grew up in a different time and the word was almost never spoken. But I knew there was something different about me. I had some issues with it because I didn't fit in that well with other young boys, although I, I really wasn't that gender dysphoric. I had a little gang that I used to hang out with and I went to an all-boys school where I was really comfortable, really liked it, partly because they were surrounded by all these hot dudes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> for, for a gay kid, it's pretty wonderful, even though it was completely agonizing. And then I went through puberty and I could not have been happier to be a boy. I could not have been happier. Right. But what I found, what, what I discovered in my body was the most amazing thing I'd ever discovered. <laughs> and I sure didn't want to be a girl because of it. Um, and then you figure it out in life. That's how most of these things happen. And kids figure it out. It takes time. And with gay kids, you never had to intervene at all. You just, just let them be and let them grow up. You don't have to. But with the trans stuff, they now have this necessity of intervening early before they've even understood puberty to fix them. And so irreversibly, what we used to think of as kids just sorting it out themselves in the long run, you support, you counsel if they're having distress. Absolutely. Mental health counseling. Um, if you certainly don't want to uh, traumatize them by punishing them for being gender dysphoric or for a little boy wearing girls or a, tom, a little girl wanting to play on the baseball team, all that stuff, you know, you can let. Parents should allow these kids to explore and be who they want to be, and it will sort itself out. I agree. To pick up on where I paused a little bit ago, so if we establish that there have always been trans kids, and I presume you agree with me that it's a very, 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 very tiny percentage of the population. Yeah, it's I mean, probably about Very small. Okay. If the logic is that... There are there's a small percentage of kids who are trans. The majority of the kids who are presenting as gender dysphoric are going to grow up to be gay. How are we supposed to know? I've had conversations with trans activists who say trans kids know who they are. There have always been gay kids who were afraid to come out to their parents, who weren't sure what was going on. If you are going to deny that kind of journey of kids who are saying they're trans, you are therefore denying the journey of kids who say they're gay. I, I guess it, it comes down to like, to put it, I don't, this is a crude way to put it, but like, how are we supposed to know who is real? Right? The truth is there is absolutely no 
solid diagnostic test for this. There isn't. And I can't tell you the number of gay male friends of mine who say, if I were born today, I don't know what might have happened. We might have, I might have, because I felt a little like a girl to yeah. some extent. I seemed to be behaving like that. And maybe that would have been, if I'd been born today, that would have been the path I would have been encouraged to take. Do you think you would have taken it? Like, imagine yourself as a child today. Do you think you would have been pushing for that? Not me, no. But others have told me that that's something that might have. If it's told you by someone in authority, yeah. if you're young and your parents are telling you this, teachers are telling you this, doctors are telling you this, the culture is telling you this, you can interpret what you're feeling in ways that are not, not necessarily valid. That's the whole point. Children are children. And they don't know. I did not know. I couldn't know the, if I was gay. I didn't, you know, how do you really know if you've never felt sexual attraction? Because you haven't gone through puberty. You have some vague idea. You seem to have sort of emotional crushes on other boys. You don't have the usual set of behaviors that other boys have, although that's not true for, for plenty of gay kids as well. So you don't know. There's no way of knowing. And there's no way of knowing for sure when a kid, before a kid has gone through puberty. There might be, you know, I think, I don't want to say never, because I do think there are some, this is what places me in this very difficult position, which is that I think there's probably a handful of cases in which the distress is so great and the diagnosis so clear that some sort of transition earlier than the, before, well, not before puberty, but at the onset of puberty, might be the best idea. And remember, that was the idea of the original Dutch experiment in this. It was aimed around two things. One was, and it wasn't to reduce suicidality, because we now know it doesn't. There's no impact on suicidality. It was because of the distress they're feeling, but critically, so they could prevent the mask. If they were a little boy, they could prevent the masculinization of the body and mind that happens in puberty. Yeah, so the, the Dutch protocol. Older, they would be more able to pass as the opposite sex. See, this is the thing too. It So much of this is about passing. In fact, it's all about passing. I, I mean, I can, and I've said this many times, I can imagine being absolutely horrified at the prospect of having to go through a puberty of the sex that I didn't identify with, especially if I were a biological male, because there's really no going back from that. But ultimately, is it not by saying, we're not going to let you, you have to wait till you're 18 or whatever to start medicalizing. Is that not essentially just saying you can do whatever you want, but the fact is you're not going to pass as well. And you're just going to have to live with that. By allowing them to transition early, all you're really doing is helping them to pass. Not that that's not important. It's certainly monumentally important to the, to the kid in that moment, but that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And by pass, it also means superficially pass. To have a relationship with someone will always unveil the reality. A sexual and relationship, yeah. A sexual relationship or an intimate relationship of some sort. You will discover that the woman that you is passing, nonetheless, does not have a functional vagina. Uh, or the man that you think you are attracted to doesn't have a dick. And they're on medications their whole life to 
sustain this illusion, they are the opposite sex. You can't, I mean, that, not to get you, that vagina does not function as a vagina. I think people don't realize that either. I mean, Colin Wright has been on this show talking about that. But I think this is something that is just, there's information is not given often. Well, there was a trans person that broke my heart in telling me they went to all this trouble and almost passed and got a boyfriend. And at, at their first time of having sex, he really, he just said, that, well, like, this can't really work because essentially what they create is simply an open wound that ends at a certain point. You can't stick your dick in too far because uh, it will hit actual body. And which is, you know, I mean, this, I'm getting extremely basic here. No one wants to talk about this. You know a lot about this for a gay guy. So, okay, very impressive. Well, yeah. no, just because it's <laughs> I know, I know. It broke her heart that she couldn't pass as a woman, even though she kind of passed as a woman. And they ended up having anal sex because at least there, you, you don't hit a, a, a wall. Yeah, with, that's, that's not, uh, not gendered. And then yeah. if you don't keep something in there or dilate it and flush it out every week, it will atrophy and will, you know, th what's happening is that when you create that wound in your groin area, it will, your body will try and heal and close the wound. So you have to keep it open. It's an extraordinary, difficult, often painful and problematic surgery. No, I know. I can't even imagine. Andrea Longshue has written about this, of course. And we also see it. I mean, this has played out on television right in front of us with the Jazz Jennings and the, the reality show, I Am Jazz. I mean, we see this young child having to dilate. Yeah. One of the key things is orgasm because natural puberty creates the material that is sensitive enough to experience an orgasm. If you remove that before it has developed, and you try and create a sort of neo-vagina using parts of someone's colon, they will never experience an orgasm. Now, how can someone who has never experienced an orgasm make an informed decision about never having one again in their lives? They can. Yeah. And again, I feel like the details are still remain really mysterious to people. Most people don't know this at all. And so there's just this kind of ambient... There, there's a need to let everybody know that you're on the right side of history. I mean, it's a, you know, as you sort of step back and look at this, you know, this this movement and all the all the moving pieces, it's a collection of sort of well-intended but utterly misguided virtue signals. And I want to segue into another thing I want to talk with you about, but by way of of uh, moving in that direction, like you mentioned before. You know, these organizations we're talking about, like GLAD, for instance, and uh, what's the other big, why, why am I forgetting? What's the other Human big? Human Rights Campaign, HRC? Yeah, H I guess so. So, you know, these, these big gay rights organizations, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that the job was basically done, the rights were achieved, and so now we need to find the next movement. We're going to keep moving the goalposts. And that's why, you know, they've entirely become about trans rights. And it's really like, it seems to me like it's a, it's a generational war more than anything else. And my question for you is like, is there any, why aren't there leaders other than, I mean, you are one, but why are not, why are there not other leaders, people who are gay, not trans, gay, stepping forward and saying, 
this is absurd and this is going to roll back our rights and this is a deeply homophobic movement. Is this, a, is, are people just afraid or are they truly not getting it? What I think they are is tribal. And when they see Ron DeSantis on one side of an issue, right. they immediately tribalize onto the other side and obscure any possibility of some sort of model, middle ground. And so what happened with Trump what happened with many issues is that they became so polarized that tribally polarized that the voices in each tribe that sought moderation were drowned out essentially by this tribal impulse demonized i mean i was fired at new york new york magazine because i was th- these themes were there you know the, and and this younger generation doesn't believe this should even be debated, that there should not be the slightest open discourse about this, because that in itself, discourse in itself, is coercive of the oppressed. Uh, So it's also deeply, deeply illiberal. There are people, but again, I think part of it is tribal, part of it is cowardice, part of it is, look, it's not easy when you are a member of a small minority to stand up against the majority sort of sentiment and tribal loyalty. I just happen to have had 30 years of experience doing it and, and not without cost, you know, not without cost. And, you know, I'm not treated, I'm not treated as a, I'm an almost a non-person for the gay rights movement. I don't really exist in their histories. I don't exist in their account of people. They just, I'm a non-person. And the more you speak up, the more non-person you will become. But at the same time, the other factor I would say is this, that the vast majority of gay men are as clueless about this as the vast majority of heterosexuals. Okay, that's what I was trying to get at. New new stupid flag. They don't notice (laughs) it essentially this ugly piece of, hideous bullshit flag is somehow which is defining us as supporting blm for god's sake is somehow they don't they just they just they just they want their they want to go to their parties that they, they've got all their civil rights they don't care that much now they're beginning to pull back funding and i think the interesting story is that you know the human rights campaign of having collapsing in funding and in support because it was gay men who financed it And it's quite clear that white gay men in particular are now regarded as the enemy of the LGBTQIA plus movement as opposed to the foundation of it. But what's happening, I understand, I hear this from other places, is that that slack is being picked up by foundation money that since 2020 has now decided this is where they put all their resources. And of course, it's then accompanied by propaganda about it an alleged epidemic of violence and murder against black trans women, all the rest of it. It's, it's, uh, it's irrational. But no, and then on the other side, we have the groomers. I mean, then there's the propaganda coming from the right, the grooming thing. I mean, I hate that. I, it's like, and, you know, somehow that there's the, the children, like it's really like repeating all of the tropes of hysteria around gay people, right? Gay people are going to turn your kids gay, that sort of thing. I mean, the grooming it's maddening. Thing- the grooming, the term grooming is designed to resurrect the notion that gay people are out to recruit your children. 
and they want to have sex with your children because we all know that most gays are pedophiles. That's the subtext of that term. And it was always and has been always disgusting. The paradox is that these queer, trans-queer activists are actually, in a way that wasn't happening in the 70s or 80s or 90s, they are trying to communicate to children outside of their parental structures directly to kids. And that's never happened before. But it's often just, it's not, it's, it's trans people themselves often, but it's also the allies, I think, even more so. The allies are the worst. Right. Um, I hate this term allies because allies implies that we're in a war. We're not in a war. We should be in a civil conversation with fellow citizens about how we can all best live together. Okay. So it's speaking very of- awkward for someone like me, for example, to suddenly you know, have Matt Walsh on my side, at least on my side, and Matt Walsh does seem to me to be brutally hostile to trans people and gay people um, as an arch-reactionary would get rid of marriage equality, would push gay people back into the closet, believes they're all going to hell, and thinks trans and gay people are roughly, you know, all the same. I mean, that, that doesn't help. See, but this, it's because the reactionaries are free to speak. See, this is what I always say. Like, if the smart, thoughtful people don't speak up, the stupid, thoughtless people are going to do the job. And that's because they don't face the same consequences from their own peer group, from their own side. So th- th- this is why, like, the reasonable people have to speak up. But I, I actually want to, before we go, I really want to make sure we touch on something that I have wanted to talk with you about <laughs> probably for decades. And this has to do with the allyship. And this has to do with... Let's let's go back several decades here to the AIDS crisis. Um, you wrote one of my favorite memoirs, um, just beautifully written, Love Undetectable, about just what it was like to be a, a gay man in that time. I mean, just I think people have young people have absolutely no idea of what it was like. I, you know, people have asked me over the last you know, many years that I've been write, writing about culture war stuff. They say, What got you? Why are you so into the hypocrisies of the left, of your own side? What drives you with this? And in the last couple of years, I realized that the very first kind of movement that made me start to think about this kind of gap between the trappings of a movement and the substance of the movement was the AIDS crisis and the way the public messaging was becoming a vehicle of style. So I was a straight young woman in the you know late 80s i was in college in the late 80s early 90s and the messaging at that time around hiv was that everybody was equally at risk right <laughs> that if you did not use a condom every every single time and and listen to madonna um you know lecturing about safe sex on stage and you know giving us fact sheets about hiv and aids on the sleeves of her record albums, you were basically a homophobe. And I wonder what you think or thought about that kind of messaging at the time. I hated it. (laughs) I actually published the New Republic when I was editor, I published a cover story by Michael Fimento called The Myth of Heterosexual AIDS. Yes. I'm sure I read it because I also wrote a very infamous piece about it, but unfortunately I was 25 years old and could not articulate my very complicated thoughts (laughs) very Uh, well. 
it was an extraordinary time, really, because it was both an incredibly exciting, exhilarating time, because it really was a breakthrough moment for gay people and for our visibility. And the generation, my generation, I mean, I was one of the first people to just be out at the beginning, very beginning of my career. Before I got any job, I was out and treated my sexual orientation as simply nothing to be ashamed of at all. And the sense among my peers of the first time a critical mass of us that were not capitulating to the closet or to shame, we're beginning to find our feet and our voices in the, in the world. And that was an exhilarating time. And you can, and at the same time that we were becoming fully ourselves, we were facing a staggering crisis of illness, and not just any illness, but sort of medieval torture of a variety of illnesses that affected people whose immune systems had collapsed people in their 20s and early 30s. And so there was this intense drama and grief and energy of the period. I often tell people to go listen to some of the music back then. But when you look at some of the great sort of early gay pop disco anthems of the late 80s, early 90s, when it was Erasure, when it was Pet Shop Boys, when it was The New Wave, you have this incredibly upbeat, high energy beat and music and, and, and riffs with lyrics that would break your heart. It was this happy, sad moment. And you go listen to early Pet Shop Boys, go listen to Left to My Own Devices um, or Being Boring and see the both the joy and the unbelievable grief that we went through and terror. We were bloody terrified. Any day we could wake up as a friend of mine did and couldn't tie his shoelaces. Rain was suddenly, you could wake up and you know, you would, you would literally starve because too many viral agents in your body would be eating your food before your stomach could. You could not walk. You look like a skeleton. You had lesions all over your body. It was terrifying. And, Extraordinarily painful, even if a sheet brushed against. Yeah, it was agony, Megan, and it was on top of which we then had the sort of the indignity of 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 having people having uh, husbands thrown out of their apartment the minute the husband other husband died, not being able to visit each other in hospital, uh, just disown the families disowning you. All this stuff went on, so it was an exhilarating and terrifying time, and. I'm still amazed, to be honest, that gay men did not psychologically give up. Because it was, it, it wasn't, it, it, Patrick Buchanan was on to, I mean, it, it singled us out because of the act of sodomy. Not only that, it was, it was, being, it was being the bottom that was going to make you most vulnerable. So it, it echoed exactly the prejudices and stigmatization that already existed. It was if a plague had come to, to, to show us, to, to give us our just desserts. Yeah. I mean, my assumption was that the reason that those nuances were never really articulated and, you know, everyone's going to get AIDS no matter what, 
I mean, when I was in, when I was in fresh, when I was my first year of college, I remember like somebody from the student health organization or somebody said, you know, there are lesbians on this campus who have HIV, who have transmitted it to other lesbians. And, you know, we were like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that must be true. It must be true. And if you doubted that it was true, you, you were, you were a homophobe. Like I said, you were not taking this, this crisis with the seriousness that you should. Now, my assumption was always that that the only way to get funding for research and for the general public to take this seriously was to think that this was not just a gay disease, that this was affecting everybody. I mean, that's a pretty simple logic. Is that basically accurate? Yeah. And it was so stupid, but that's the truth. They did it to, in some ways, not to stigmatize gay men. Right. In that attempt not to stigmatize us, they misled us and also misled everyone else. And stupid, but similar to the way these elites especially treat minorities, not with honesty, candor, and specificity, but with this hideous condescending goo that you kind of, that, that attempts to make your unique experience somehow universal one. It wasn't. And the data revealed that. But it's amazing. These narratives that people hold that do not reflect reality that they become attached to. Yeah. The, it's also fueled by the desire to, to appear virtuous and not quote unquote homophobic, which is, which is, you know, at the same time actually turns out to put gay men in a in a tough place. Yeah, well, and I feel like that's what's happening with the trans debate is if you ask questions or if you wonder what's going on with your kid when they say that they're trans, that codes as, you know, not sufficiently progressive, that codes as transphobic. I mean, the, it's a little bit, there, there are some parallels. Take the term conversion therapy. Yeah. Uh, which always meant the deliberate attempt of a gay person to go to a therapist who was going to cure them of homosexuality. And by the way, I think that should remain legal, even though it's, it's banned everywhere, because I, I think grown-ups should be able to make whatever choices they want to make with their therapy. But I'm in a minority, obviously, about that. But, but conversion therapy for a kid who declares himself the opposite sex means you cannot ever question any aspect of that child's affirmation, a, a declaration. In other words, you're not allowed to say, well, let's talk about other things that might be going on with you. How are you with your parents? Like, do you have, are you, do you have autism? Are there other mental health issues involved here? Yeah, exploratory therapy, that would be called. Yeah. All that stuff, just figure out who you are. That is what they mean by banning conversion therapy, is banning therapy for kids identifying as trans to figure out if they really are or not. Yeah. I mean, the, it, this is the, the language, the, this is the hijacking of language. I mean, it's perf perfectly, it, that's a perfect example. The way they're using the word queer to refer to all gay people when a vast, huge numbers of us do not use that word, do not want to use that word. And many of us in older generations find that word really triggering and traumatizing. And it's amazing that a movement that is always saying we can't trigger or traumatize anyone ever under any circumstances, deliberately and proudly uses the word queer that they know traumatizes and triggers a whole section of their own community. It reveals them as utter bullshit artists. Our generations are going to die out soon, though. So who no, knows? But reality doesn't die. And we know that this stuff is lies. 
It's not true. And so eventually, lies fail, and they have to fail, and they are failing. And I am not pessimistic about this, because I, I just think there's reality endures. And you can try and disguise it, and you can try and pretend it isn't happening, but it will be there. And the actual number of genuinely transgender people, transsexual people, is very small. The number of gen gender dysphoric kids are overwhelmingly gay. And that at some point, if too many of these gay kids are transitioned, they will at some point realize they made a terrible mistake. And we will have a reversal of all of this. As we've, we're seeing a reversal of it happening in Europe, in which they realize they've been making this terrible mistake and are, are being much more cautious in their treatment of children in this way. Yeah. Well, Andrew, I know we're, we're out of time, but I just want to end by asking you, what do you find yourself thinking about that you believe doesn't get enough attention? What are the issues that you wish there was more discussion of that we're, we're taking all this time talking about stuff like trans and there's others, there are other things out there? Oh, we should give me a little chance to think about this in advance, but um, <laughs> just uh, the at one this very moment, always... what do you wish we were talking about instead? Well, the one thing I, one issue that I think is completely under-treated, and this actually reflects a little bit on the trans question, is sort of default circumcision of boys, infants in America. This genital mutilation, which for which there is virtually no benefit, that is done routinely, that should be stopped. That removes the most sensitive part of a man's sexual organ. And it's for no reason. And yet it happens, it's still happening almost automatically. So, you know, we talk about, uh, one of the things I, I say is if you are against puberty blockers and, and surgery on children within their nether regions and you are still supporting circumcision, you have a hell of a lot of thinking to do because you are being utterly incoherent. So the one question I really was leave children alone, especially their bodies, especially their sexual function. Uh, there's no reason to force infants to go through an incredibly painful and sometimes dangerous procedure for no reason at all. All right. Well, maybe come back and talk about that more sometime. You should write a whole book yeah. about that. I'm I look, I get so much shit for bringing that up. Well, this talk about sunk cost theory. No, I think a lot of people think you're right, but there's so much I mean, so many people do that to their kids without thinking about it that I guess the logic is like, okay, well, if you if you force those people to reckon with what they did and that their reckoning is going to keep them away from thinking hard about the gender movement, then yeah, especially, why? Especially don't make them think about it. Especially if they've, they've, they've had it done to themselves, they don't want to kind of admit that they've been mutilated when they have been mutilated. And anyway, thank you. All right, Megan, Andrew, for, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for mentioning Love Undetectable. I really, I would, I, I really, it's my, the book I'm proudest of and the book, that is least read, and um, I hope some people pick it up and have a look at it. It's it's uh, it's a lot of philosophy in there. It's a um, it's a beautiful book. It came out in 1998. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I have I have assigned it to students, and I I talk about it a lot. Yeah, it's it's, it's gorgeous. Great. And you're you're a beautiful writer, and um, 
I've always loved reading your work. Well, Andrew, I'm so glad we finally got a chance to talk. Thank you yeah. for everything you do, and um, hopefully we can do it again. Thank you, Megan. It's been a, a lovely time chatting with you. That was my conversation with Andrew Sullivan. You can find his weekly dish newsletter at andrewsullivan.substack.com. You can find this podcast Substack page at megandom.substack.com. Become a paying subscriber and get bonus episodes, access to things I write, and at the founding member level, a chance to come to periodic Zoom hangouts. Again, the Unspeakeasy, that is my community for free-thinking women, now has its first three retreats of 2024 lined up. They will be Austin, March 2nd and 3rd, Louisville, Kentucky, April 8th through 11th, and Los Angeles, April 20th and 21st. The guest speakers in Louisville are Corinna Cohn and Nina Paley from the Hetero Dorks podcast. If you are interested in a lot of what I just talked about with Andrew, you will be interested in them. I promise you. That is a podcast uh, all about the new gender movement. And by the way, we talk about lots of things in the Unspeakeasy, pretty much everything you can think of that's interesting and complicated to talk about, not just gender, but that does tend to come up. So go to theunspeakeasy.com to find out more about retreats and also our amazing online community. We have uh, book clubs in there, guest speakers, live events, discussion forums on every possible thing, pet photos. You can share your pet photos. You know, it's all great. So I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then. <laughs>